Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast, where we explore the trends impacting private equity today. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director in BDO's Private Equity Practice, and I'm based here in New York City. Joining me today, we have Lawrence Goff, co-founder and managing partner at Stone Goff Partners, and Todd Squilanti, Managing Director at Intandem Capital Partners. Today, we're going to talk about value creation, integrations, and portfolio company optimization in the current market, and also how Lawrence and Todd are partnering with their portfolio companies to drive value. So just a quick reminder to our listeners that the remarks and opinions of our guests do not necessarily represent BDO's views. So Lawrence, first over to you. You co-founded Stone Golf Partners in 2010 and have been focusing on tech-driven service businesses for several years. Perhaps you can share a bit about your firm, your strategy, and your day-to-day. Absolutely. Thank you, Todd. Stone Goff is a 13-year-old firm based in Boston and New York. We actually evolved out of an independent sponsor model and now manage just short of $500 million in four different funds. Our strategy is all about the lower middle market. It's all about partnering with founders in the services vertical and helping them uh, embrace a level of technology to create value on exits. Our core set of verticals underneath services include business services, IT services, consulting services, outsourced services, marketing services, and human capital and training. Ultimately, our goal is to produce exceptional returns for our investors, but we truly are entrepreneurs. My partner, Hannah Stone Craven and I really talk to prospective existing and past partners as peers. Uh, We challenge them the way we challenge our team internally. And ultimately we're doing the same things day in, day out. Um, The fun thing about private equity is that every day is different and every uh, opportunity, every portfolio company, every fundraising process requires a different skill set, muscle, and behavior. And so there is no common standard day. But as we have evolved, and and really similar to our management teams, uh, the talent piece and the culture piece has become more important. Uh, and that's exciting, exhilarating, and, and a really um, a different process than when we founded the business, which once again parallels what our management teams do as they add to their seat suites and think about scaling their business. The culture piece is a ton of fun. I mean, cu- culture is a little bit of a code word for doing things to connect the team and and um, 
we've had a fair amount of fun with the team and, and uh, it's a nice reminder that um, yes, we all work really hard, but the best way to stay connected as a group and a firm is to be out and about playing golf, going to a game or skiing together. So culture to me has been um, the, the, the latest chapter in terms of evolving the firm that I've really embraced. Well, thanks, Lawrence. Appreciate that background. So Todd is, uh, again, as a managing director at uh, in Tandem Capital, uh, can you share a bit about your firm, your unique approach in the healthcare services space and, and your role in general? Yeah, happy to do that. In Tandem Capital, we're a New York-based uh, lower middle market healthcare services uh, private equity firm with a unique uh, operational support model. We started back in 2012 and now investing out of our, our third fund. Uh, we started back as a, an independent sponsor as well and uh, raised our first fund in 17. We focus uh, uh, on lower middle market healthcare businesses, uh, primarily founder or operator owned, but not exclusively. And we target businesses with five to $30 million of EBITDA. Uh, we do, in fact, invest only in healthcare services, which means no biotech, no devices, no venture style deals. We invest in established businesses that align with the triple aim of healthcare uh, around improving the patient experience, improving patient health outcomes, and doing all that while reducing cost to the healthcare system. Within the healthcare vertical, we target three sectors of healthcare, payer services, provider services, and patient services. And then within those sectors, we are very thesis-driven. We develop a thesis in a certain subsector and dig in hard to, to those areas to find the best companies and executives to back. Uh, so for instance, we developed theses in sectors such as Medicaid, home and community-based services, care for the seriously ill, and integrated mental health and addiction treatment services. We invested in those areas. And while I'm on the board of those three portfolio companies, uh, there are many others on our team who are all involved in helping to create value. And we can dig into that more here in a bit. But in a nutshell, uh, we see ourselves as extended members of the management team acting in, in that capacity. We see ourselves as true partners and Deal-making for us is about trans mutual transparency and finding kindred spirits who share a common vision and uh, a, a humble, a common approach to building great businesses. And that's, for us, uh, what sets us apart and, and how we think about ourselves every day. Well, I appreciate that background, Todd. So now I'd like to set the stage for our conversation in terms of how you uh, see the landscape changing. After several busy years of acquisitions, many PE firms have been turning their focus to value creation with integrations and portfolio company optimization at the forefront. In the current environment, how have your uh, deal acquisition and value creation strategies evolved, if at all? Uh, Lawrence, let's start with you. Todd, great question. The way I would characterize this market is... Uh, uncertain, uh, uncertain from a standpoint of uh, economic visibility and and practically uh, what we've seen in the lower middle market is um, just a different uh, tactical vibe to winning, closing new business and growing businesses. 
I think our response to that has been to evolve a core tenant of how we invest and prioritize that more in our platform acquisition approach and our post-closing value-add approach. And that's a real focus and prioritization around visibility. And and visibility uh, really means the ability to see into the future around revenue and revenue opportunities. Uh, uh, There are many different ways to uh, frame visibility. I think the, the easiest way to frame it is contractual SaaS-like, software-like visibility. What what we are looking for as a service as an investor who brings technology to the table, we are looking for embedded visibility that doesn't necessarily mean contractual visibility. Examples of that are in a professional services model, customer engagement lengths of 18 to 36 months, retention rates of 100% plus. In a situation where project work does exist, project lengths of two to five years. And so identifying and highlighting this visibility in diligence is core to what we do. And it has become in this market uh, an absolute table stakes requirement. The value add of accelerating, enhancing, and really um, prioritizing those features has also been uh, something that we have spent more and more time on in terms of post-closing value add. So things like emphasizing pipeline, backlog, ARR, MRR, reoccurring, and productization are all things that, to some extent in the lower middle market, um, are discussed but not recorded, reported, emphasized. And so what we've done is both prioritize uh, on entrance the ability to drive these features, but also focusing on them post-close and using them as strategic goals to really create a a business um, that can be exited to a larger strategic or sponsor because the visibility has increased dramatically and they can embrace that with a higher valuation. Yeah, well, visibility and uncertain times. I think that's a, a fair character characterization, but uh takes a seasoned pro like uh you to uh pull that off. So I uh appreciate the uh the feedback. So Todd, how about your approach to uh deal acquisition and value creation? Yeah, you know, for us it's a little different. We spend we're not a volume shop by by definition or by our charter, uh, we we really spend most of our time and always have optimizing our portfolio companies, and that makes us different. You know, we have this unique blend of operational and investment expertise that's a reflection of the experience and the vision of 
our founder and managing partner, Elliot Cooperstone, who ran several healthcare and employer services before starting in tandem. And most of us that joined in Elliot in launching in tandem were former healthcare operating execs. And we've added other operators and investors as we've grown over the last decade. And together we've honed and refined and expanded a library of playbooks that we customize to help our portco management partners define everything from mission, vision, and values to logically connected employee incentive plans, operational processes, and KPIs. And all of us, whether investment or operating professional, we roll up our sleeves and take accountability uh, for key infrastructure projects for our port codes as needed, typically reporting into the port code CEO or CFO. And in that regard, we truly see ourselves as working for our management team partners and not them working for us. So that level of active support, it typically ramps down after the first 18 months or so, after which the port codes can hire full-time resources in our place. And, and this is different from firms that pull in some retired operating exec to parachute into a portfolio company meeting here or there, and then fly back to Naples or West Palm Beach. Ours is a, a fully developed blend of operators and investors. And uh, for this reason, it's noteworthy that we run concentrated portfolios in our fund. Uh, we cannot be supporting 10 to 15 companies per fund. Our fund one was four companies. Fund two was a $500 million pool of capital. That was also four companies. And we're currently raising fund three, which we expect to be 650 to 750 million. And that will be six to seven companies. So uh, we continue to stick to our knitting in this environment in terms of just investing in a handful of healthcare businesses and tailoring our support model to meet their, their individual needs. I like the comment that... Uh... You work for the the portfolio companies, not the other way around. I like that approach. And, you know, you're probably going to have some listeners reaching out to you for your playbooks. Not a surprise to most. Uh, Add-on deals seem to be top of mind for many funds this year, as opposed to looking for new platform opportunities. So, uh, uh, Lawrence, I'll come back to you. Are you seeing that focus uh, play out in your markets? You know, it's core to what we do of all of the portfolio companies in the last three funds that uh, we've raised and are managing, uh, 65% of those companies have done at least one add-on. So core in terms of the value creation, um, but that number is not 100%. So it is a case-by-case -case basis. Um, from our standpoint, um, our view in this market is um, – we're in the lower middle market. There is not a consistent macro environment that is pushing us away from our core strategy of, of making platform investments. Um, and so the strategy will be to continue to, to make uh, platform investments and then with a strategic view in mind, how to create value either through add-ons or talent and then uh, thinking about encouraging and enhancing the technology that the company uses to embrace visibility. Having said that, 
uh, we are seeing uh, more and more opportunities in the add-on space um, and, and are eager to productize our playbook in terms of how we help management teams uh, go about doing those add-ons that I think we'll talk about later in the podcast, um, the technology integration aspects of those add-ons. Our view ultimately is empowering great leadership to really pursue and pitch their vision of the company to add-on leadership is the true recipe for success. And so we continue to do that in the portfolio um, and uh, we have enough examples where that's created value, that that's become uh, a fully developed muscle in-house at Stonegoff Partners. Todd, leveraging off uh, Lawrence's comments, I mean, are you, see, are you seeing that in uh, healthcare? The roll-up equation is widely deployed in healthcare and, and continues to be. Uh, for in tandem's part, we've remained very consistent in terms of our investment objectives, our approach to value creation, and our pace of capital deployment. Uh, healthcare services has proven itself overall to be a very durable investment sector over the last 20 years. And we're constantly refining our investment themes and our associated theses in specific uh, niches of healthcare. But we've been singularly focused on just this sector. In terms of value creation, uh, our stock and trade is supporting companies with a proven value proposition in their move up to the next level to become market leaders. And we have expertise in every different function that allows us to repurpose and adapt those playbooks to take action quickly, drive change, and enable management teams to ramp up their growth rates. To talk about deal activity more specifically, uh, we have invested in one new platform and 13 add-ons so far this year. If we annualize that number, uh, we'll be very consistent, if not slightly ahead with prior year activities. So uh, yes, we do see growth by way of consolidating fragmented subsectors, um, but we have been consistent in our view that corporate development is not about the math of stacking EBITDA and gambling on purchase multiple arbitrage. We have a different corporate development philosophy that's much more about choosing complementary or transformative add-ons and identifying partners that fit culturally. Uh, as as add-on deals are, are moving towards the finish line, we also deploy our tools that enable successful integration of acquired operations and, and human capital. So in short, our focus has not changed this year, either in terms of sector activity or, or levels of add-on activity, uh, more or less steady as she goes. Yeah, fair enough. I would I would say the majority of the firms I uh, the private equity firms that I cover have kind of done a handful of platforms and they're in the double digits for add-ons. So clearly, add-on deals are critical to any buy and build strategies. One step further on on this topic, Lawrence, uh, in your experience, what are some of the biggest challenges uh, fund managers face when pursuing add-on deals? Great question, Todd. You know the challenges are really incentivizing and cultivating, you know, a common vision um, for both the platform and the add-on. That, that's where we've seen um, both challenges and opportunities. I, I think in general, the core Stonegoff thesis around partnering with management teams, which truly means partnering with founders uh, to make 
uh, a majority investment in their business, but retain them as significant minority owners and have them really drive the vision and the thesis and the execution with someone else um, in their camp that they can bounce ideas off of. That whole dynamic, which is core to what we do in the services space, in the lower middle market space, that applies to add-ons too. Um, and so the idea that um, you can incentivize uh, another set of owners to become true key components of a platform business because they have equity, because we have compensated them for their business uh, with equity, um, is something we really stress. I think the nuance uh, from an execution standpoint, and this is um, probably part and parcel with diligence, is that, as I mentioned before, our leaders are usually the first person uh, describing that vision for the business to the prospective add-on businesses and their leaders. And that communication and that interaction uh, can be really powerful um, because ultimately it is uh, the leadership of the platform, their vision and their execution that's going to really make the add-on work. And so that's something that we've emphasized and relearned over time. And that dynamic, setting the table about a shared vision and both having upside in the form of equity really sets the table well for um, diligence, uh, scaling, and ultimately profitable exits. That's uh, that's great insight, Lawrence. I, uh, I appreciate the, appreciate those uh, additional thoughts. So I'm going to hit a uh, very brief pause on our conversation and turn it over to today's Coffee Break guest. Hello, and thank you for joining me today. My name is Robert Mursky. I'm a principal at BDO, and I'm the co-leader of BDO's Asset Management Industry Group. Uh, I want to discuss the new private fund advisor rules that the SEC adopted along party lines uh, three to two on August 23rd, 2023, uh, with an effective date of November 13th, 2023. These rules are a significant update to the U.S. regulation of private fund advisors, and they will have important implications for the asset management industry. Uh, the new rules consist of five sets of regulations that apply to different types of advisors and funds, depending on the registration status, domicile, and location. The main objectives of the rules are to enhance transparency, fairness, and investor protection in the private fund market. The adopting release also requires all SEC-registered investment advisors to document their annual compliance reviews. As for timing, generally private fund advisors covered by the rules will have either a 12 or an 18 month compliance transition window following the effective date, while compliance with the written annual review rule is required 60 days after Federal Register publication. Uh, let's look at each of the five sets of rules. They're known as the quarterly statement rule, the private fund audit rule, the advisor-led secondary rule, the restricted activity rule, and the preferential treatment rule. Uh, the first rule, the quarterly statement rule, requires SEC-registered advisors to provide investors with quarterly information about private fund advisor compensation, fund fees and expenses, and performance. Uh, the rule aims to give investors more insight into how their money is being managed and what costs and benefits they're receiving. Uh, the rule, though, requires quarterly statements now to be prepared and distributed to investors in private funds 
uh, that are not fund of funds within 45 days after the first three fiscal quarter ends of each fiscal year and 90 days after the end of each fiscal year. Uh, if the private fund is a fund of funds, though, then the quarterly statements must be distributed to the private fund investors within 75 days after the first three fiscal quarter ends of each fiscal year and 120 days after the fiscal year end of the private fund. Uh, the second rule is the mandatory private fund audit rule, which requires SEC registered advisors to cause each private fund they advise to undergo an annual audit uh, as set forth in the custody rule and audited financial uh, statements to be delivered to investors. Uh, this rule intends to ensure the private fund financial information is accurate and reliable and that investors can, can verify the value of their investments. Um, so that rule, you know, is is something I think that that most uh, SEC registered advisors probably were already following. Uh, the third rule is the advisor led secondary rule, which requires SEC registered advisors that engage in advisor led secondary transactions to obtain and distribute a fairness or valuation opinion and to provide a summary of any material business relationships between the advisor or its related persons and the independent opinion provider. This rule seeks to prevent conflicts of interest and ensure that investors receive fair value uh, of their interest in private funds. Uh, the fourth rule is the restricted activities rule, which restricts advisors from engaging in certain activities, such as charging or allocating certain fees and expenses to private funds, unless the advisor meets certain disclosure and, in some cases, consent-based exceptions. Uh, this rule aims to protect investors from abusive or unfair practices by advisors. And finally, the fifth rule is the preferential treatment rule, which prohibits advisors from granting preferential redemption or uh, information rights about portfolio holdings that would have a material negative effect on the investors in the private fund or a similar pool of assets. This rule strives to promote equal treatment of investors and prevent favoritism or discrimination by advisors. Uh, it's important to note, though, that generally prior side letters can be grandfathered so long as uh, these were in writing and had been entered into prior to the compliance date and that the fund had already commenced operations at the compliance date. Uh, as for final timing of rule compliance, as I mentioned, there are transitional deadlines for compliance with the various elements of the rules, ranging from 12 to 18 months, depending on the size of the advisor measured by assets under management. I'll make one final comment on that, uh, on the timing, which is that a group of industry bodies has sued uh, in the U.S. Fifth, US Fifth Circuit, which, which is known as a more conservative court to stop implementation of the rules. Uh, the result may be a stay of the rules or uh, for further review or potentially a reversal of the rules. That said, asset managers need to be aware of these new rules and how they'll affect their business with an eye toward eventual implementation. They need to prepare for the new reporting and auditing requirements, review fee structures and expense allocations, assess potential conflicts of interest and disclosure obligations, and evaluate redemption and information policies. Uh, they also need to communicate with existing and particularly prospective investors about these changes and how they will impact them. The new rules have a significant impact on the private fund market in the U.S. and the expectations of investors in private funds. They will also affect non-U.S. advisors that advise U.S. domiciled funds and that are registered with the SEC. Non-U.S. advisors that advise non-U.S. funds will not be subject to most of the rules, except for the written annual review rule, if they're registered with the SEC. However, non-U.S. advisors might find it beneficial or necessary to comply with the rules to continue to fundraise in the U.S. or to meet investor demands. Uh, I hope this has been helpful in giving you a brief overview of the new private fund advisor rule and their implications for you. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out. Thank you very much. 
And with that out of the way, let's pivot back to focusing on the talent challenges impacting private equity. So Lawrence and Todd, uh, according to BDO's annual PE survey, fund managers and portfolio company CFOs say talent management is their primary strategy for value creation over the next 12 months. So Todd, I'm going to throw this one over to you first. When it comes to add-on deals, What's your advice for portfolio company leadership teams for attracting and really retaining critical talent? Sure, this is a great question. Absolutely uh, top of mind for, for our shop. I'm sure lots of PE groups out there. And human capital is an area where we've sharpened our focus for both new platform investments and add-ons this year. Honestly speaking, for most groups and, and most operating businesses, HR has historically been a back office function. And now in today's environment, that's changing where we're seeing and we're focusing our companies on viewing recruiting and retention processes as being tantamount to the sales function. And the biggest limiting growth to factor for some healthcare businesses is actually workforce availability not the number of clients or number of patients you can serve. Uh, with respect to integrating an add-on, focus on the workforce stability and retention is job one. Um, in healthcare services, the main assets you're buying are typically the people and the staff. So if you fail to retain what you bought, you're obviously destroying value. And uh, it's easy to gloss over the anxiety most employees feel when they learn their company's been acquired. Most employees go right to the worst case scenario. Am I going to lose my job? Will my pay and my benefits be cut? Whether it's rational or not, most employees fear the worst until the acquirer proves to them that their jobs, their benefits, uh, their comp will all be stable to better under new ownership. And I think Lauren's made some really good points on the importance of getting the uh, acquired management team and acquired leadership team to be singing from the same hymn book as uh, the platform management team. So it's a unified vision and uh, you can work with uh, the, the combined executive team to take parts of our add-on integration toolkit that address that day one employee anxiety and adapt the, the tools to the needs of a given acquired operation and, work, and workforce. Ultimately, I'd say it's about explaining to acquired employees that their continued contributions are key to the growth of the combined platform, that they are the reason you bought the business and uh, you're not there to get rid of them, and ensuring that they feel that they can come in and do their best work every day. And most importantly, they see how that work is connected to the company's uh, mission, vision, and strategy. So that's that's what we're doing uh, to make add-on uh, successful and to really uh, optimize the workforce question and retain and recruit talent. Yeah, well, a lot of personal insight there, Todd. I, uh, I appreciate the candidness with our, uh, our listeners. So, Lawrence, knowing talent is critical, how are you working with your Portco business leaders to attract, retain, and ensure the right talent is in place to execute the value creation plan? We spent a lot of time on this. This is part of the process that we go through with our platform companies. It's really important in the lower middle market to think about 
the right incremental C-suite talent to make sure you found the right personas to make sure they fit culturally. Todd K, I think the easy answer is um, aligning incentives and and equity uh, in the form of some sort of incentive equity tends to be a consistent tool uh, that we use because over the course of our history, it's been really powerful. And the outcomes where founders, co-founders, new C-suite members, to the extent certain uh, mid-level management VPs have gotten equity, to see their reaction, to see the handwritten cards uh, when we collectively decide to exit an investment, that's powerful. Uh, conveying that directly, indirectly through past partners um, is you know, the most important tool we have to really motivate founding or incremental teams. Honing that, describing that, communicating around that. Um, it, these are private companies, equity has many, many different range of outcomes. But talking about past performance, talking about uh, how people have benefited and creating a culture of transparency around how the company is doing is is something that's consistently used throughout our portfolio. In, in a lot of cases in the lower middle market, um, we found that um, platform businesses historically, you know, have not shared equity, have not shared a lot of financial information. And so um, uh, in a lot of ways, this next chapter for a set of founders means a, a new chapter for the employees and the people that have the ability to earn equity. And and that means um, a pretty different view into the business. Um, but that's a positive and we really enjoy doing it. And it is, uh, it's a core uh, set of interactions we have with Porco's. Good answer. I, I think you guys did a great job collectively on the, uh, the talent challenges. So we'll move on and uh, let's, let's talk a bit about tech integrations. So uh, Todd, I'll, I'll start with you. Obviously maximizing technology is likely uh, a key topic that comes up in your conversations with execs and entrepreneurs. So perhaps you can share a bit about the importance of having a, uh, a strong technological infrastructure in place as you integrate acquisitions into a, uh, a larger platform. In our world, in tandem, uh, technology is an enabler of strategy and operational tactics. So we don't view tech as an end in and of itself. Uh, business needs, performance objectives, service delivery measures, they all drive your operational process. Uh, process needs then subsequently drive the tech solution and infrastructure requirement. And those tech requirements, they may change as the underlying business needs change and as the companies grow. Uh, and technology to us is this vast universe that we cannot be expert in all areas of no more than we can be experts in all corners of the massive healthcare vertical. Uh, some of the dimensions of technology, you know, include core IT infrastructure management, internal software development that might be required, third-party systems infrastructure, and, and I'm just naming a few of the areas. To this, we take a very pragmatic approach, and we have multiple folks on our team and in tandem 
who are expert in scoping the issues, defining the business needs, and helping management develop the best approach to solving those issues. In some cases, our businesses bring on internal resources. And in other cases, we identify and bring in best-in-class outside experts. Again, we take a pragmatic and, and flexible approach to building that uh, IT infrastructure into uh, and, and our approach to how we integrate add-ons onto that infrastructure. One thing we can say is that, un, un, not unlike others, we are uh, always seeking to glean insights from data. Uh, it's key to what we do and, and critical for our management teams to chart a strategy that meets the healthcare triple aim. And in turn, we've added frameworks for building data warehouses for our portfolio companies that enable more effective external services delivery and internal business performance. Some of these tools have become so embedded in our portco operational processes that our management teams have actually branded the, branded those data warehouses. Broadly speaking, this has been our approach to tech infrastructure, very pragmatic one, and it's been successful for us thus far. All right, Todd, thank you. Lawrence, Todd was pretty uh, thorough there, but I'm, I'm sure you, you have something else to, uh, to add on the topic. So please share with the listeners. Definitely. The, uh, we never use the terms buy and sell because we're partnering with our founders, but in terms of technology and technology infrastructure, this idea of culture of technology embracing ERP to really scale and get more insight. And, and ultimately, in the 65 to 70% uh, situations where we are doing an add-on, it helps integrate. And so in a lot of ways, we like to buy QuickBooks and sell NetSuite. Uh, we like to buy Excel spreadsheets and sell CRMs like Pipedrive and Salesforce. We like to buy, you know, loose uh, spreadsheets that uh, are not interactive and ultimately sell BI tools like Airtable and Tableau. Uh, it, it is one of the awesome things about the lower middle market is that uh, the payback on technology uh, and technology integrations is huge, I think, to truly integrate multiple add-ons. Uh, we have found that having that strong technology platform is, is an absolute requirement. Um, so it's core to what we do, and uh, we will continue to do more of it. Well, I love the uh, buy and sell uh, approach to your uh, your answer on uh, on technology. I think it makes it pretty clear for the uh, the listeners. Thanks to both of you. So, believe it or not, that uh, brings us to the last question of the episode, and that's your outlook for the next twelve months. What are your predictions for private equity in the next year, and how do you expect it to evolve? Uh, Todd, I'll put you uh, on the hot seat first. Oh boy, uh, making <laughs> predictions always scares me. Uh, and I certainly can't speak for all of private equity, but I can tell you our outlook at Intandem is quite bullish right now. And we think it's a great time to be investing in healthcare. Much is made by other shops these days about the tougher credit markets, but 
This is not an obstacle for us. A high leverage has never been a source of our returns. Um, our portfolio is levered at less than four times and interest coverage across all our port codes exceeds two times, usually by much wider margins. Uh, as a sector, healthcare has proven to be extremely recession resistant, growing through the great financial crisis of the 2000s through today. The underlying sector tailwinds around the aging of Americans, increasing incidence of chronic diseases, the site of care shifts to outpatient and home settings, the ongoing cost shifts from Medicare and Medicaid to commercial health plans shows no signs of letting up. And in some cases, these shifts uh, have to happen, such as the site of care shifts, they have to happen for our healthcare system to evolve and thrive. So we're looking to invest behind solutions to these themes, whether it's helping self-funded employers identify ways to reduce healthcare spend without cutting benefits, or creating platforms that unify the post-acute continuum and coordinate patient care in the most appropriate setting, which in most cases will be at home. Uh, we, we feel really bullish about our activity uh, in this way. Uh, overall, though, the, there's a lot of dry powder and sitting on the sidelines looking to be deployed in private equity, healthcare businesses. But we believe that those good businesses with strong management teams, employee cultures, and value propositions that deliver on healthcare's triple aim will continue to grow and trade for attractive multiples. So good assets won't be cheap. And in today's environment, there'll be a premium on value creation by refining strategy and enhancing operational process that goes well beyond financial engineering and leverage. We're obviously quite comfortable with those kinds of value creation activities, and we are actively deploying capital right now. Lauren, you want to take a stab at the crystal ball? I'm happy to. Sure. You. Yeah. Sure, Todd. Uh, I will make my prediction around the market using data that that we've collected, and, and that really is an improving story in terms of uh, deal activity and deal opportunities. When we look at the second half of 2022, our deal flow was down 35%. When we look at the first half of 2023, our deal flow uh, is down only 15%. So an improving trend. I think high level, the reason we are so committed to the lower middle market is to us, that is just the environment that we're investing in. Uh, our deployment pace has remained consistent. We are 30% deployed in our latest fund and our core set of skills in terms of identifying visible business models, partnering with founders, bringing some level of talent and M&A to the table, and then encouraging, enhancing, and emphasizing technology to improve and create visibility in the business model is extremely relevant in any market. And we are super excited to go out and continue to deploy our committed capital next to founders who truly have a vision and, and whether the economic market is clear or uncertain can execute in a way that is completely uncorrelated. And so 
our passion and focus on the lower middle market gives us a lot of optimism, much like Todd S. Uh, in terms of his market. And we're excited to go out there and continue to produce uh, returns for our investors. That's my prediction. We're excited. Well, guys, listen, that uh, that brings us to the end of the uh, episode. I, I want to thank you both for your time. I know you're busy. BDO does uh, value our relationships with uh, Stone Golf Partners and In Tandem Capital. So, you know, just a, a final thank you. Uh, you guys provided some great insight, and I know the listeners are going to uh, enjoy this episode. So thank you very much. To our listeners, thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms.